Good morning. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. So glad you could be with us today. What would happen if you asked Americans to share their experiences with race, but in only six words? More than a decade ago, that's how journalist Michelle Norris started the project that eventually became her new book. It was published just a couple of weeks ago. It's called Our Hidden Conversations, What Americans Really Think About Race and Identity. Over the years, more than half a million people responded to Michelle's request with their six words, a half million. She includes many of them in her book, along with photographs, their backstories, and her own essays. Michelle is speaking this evening at the Westminster Town Hall Forum in Minneapolis. But this morning, she's here in the studio with me. Good morning, Michelle. Thank you so much Good for morning. coming in. I always love being with you. Yes, well, Thanks for having me. Yes, welcome home. Uh, you live in the D.C. area. How does it feel to be home in the Twin It cities? feels great. It yeah. feels great. I love flying over Minnesota, uh, even when it's snowy. <laughs> <laughs> and I just get this, you know, I still do this thing where I look out. The planes fly over South Minneapolis. They fly over mm-hmm. the neighborhood I grew up in. I could, as a kid, I could remember the sh- the light fixture in the dining room kind of shaking a little bit. Wow. Um, and so I, whenever I fly in, I'm trying to spot. I look at the lakes and then I figure out, okay, there's you're looking for your neighborhood, right? right. There's Lake Harriet, okay, and there's the Minneapolis, where there's Nokomis. And we're sort of in between <laughs> those two things, and I'm always trying to spot my house. And my have- child, my, not my house anymore. Another family lives there, but the child, and you the house I grew up in. Many relatives still living here. I do. I do. Well, we're glad to have you back. Um, I want to let you know, you know, and you probably do know, a a focus of this talk show is how the state of Minnesota is changing, um, but also the disparities that still exist, Mm -hmm. uh, racial disparities, and the differences that remain in healthcare, education, home ownership, household income, if you are a person of color compared to white Minnesotans. And so I know you're keeping track of what's happening here at home. What do you make of it? You know, why we still see such disparities here in Minnesota? You know, I... It, it it breaks my heart a little bit because I've seen a lot of change in Minnesota. I mean, my family came here. My mother's from here. She's fourth generation. My father came here from um, – went from Birmingham to Chicago and then Chicago to here. And this was a real land of opportunity. There, there always have been disparities, but they've grown. Mm-hmm. That chasm has grown so much wider. And, you know, some of it is is the economic tumult. That we have all experienced. Some of it is a little bit of nimbyism. You know, I don't want, I don't want low income housing in my neighborhood. You know, I don't want that center for young people to learn in my neighborhood. And, um, and some of it is, is perhaps sitting back on laurels too quickly. You know, thinking that a problem had been solved when in fact, you have to be sort of a constant gardener. I mean, some people don't believe in social engineering, but Minnesota for a long time was a great example of that, of, you know, figuring out how to level the playing field or at least create a more level playing field so more people could get access to affordable housing, to a good education, to senior care so that you could live with dignity into your your older years. And it, it seems that um, that some of that Minnesota pride and some of those things allowed allowed a situation to fester underneath that that maybe wasn't getting the attention that, that it deserved. I think a lot of it is tied to also just this reluctance to talk about race. 
which is, yeah. you know, yeah. your, you can't your, you your can't passion. solve a problem unless you admit that it exists. You have to and, admit that it. and, you know, mm-hmm. Angela, listen, I grew up and I was told, don't talk about race. Don't talk about politics. Mm-hmm. Don't talk about religion. I mean, you may talk about it at the dinner table at home, but this is not the kind of conversation that you have when you're out in the world because it makes people uncomfortable. It can, you know, shut down um, a conversation. You know, part of being Minnesota nice was was not making was was to avoid making people uncomfortable. Right. And so in order to look at these kinds of disparities we have to have uncomfortable conversations. One of the lessons for me on the book is we're talking about racial disparities. I mean there also are great economic disparities in terms of urban and rural disparities. Yes. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. we heard from so many white Americans who were sending in their six-word submission saying, "Hey, what about us?" because, you know, someone said poor white is the new black. And what they were pointing to is you if you pick up the Kerner Commission report, which was written in the 1960s to look at the disparities, and that time in you know, a very binary look between black America and white America. But if you look at a lot of the indices of poverty that are indicated in the Kerner report and you looked at it in rural America today, you would see many of the same things in terms of access to education, in terms of maternal mortality, in terms of drug use, in terms – of marriage rates, in terms of all the things that start to show sort of a broken, fractured society. And and so that's one of the reasons the subtitle of the book is what Americans really think about race and identity, because I've learned that if you talk about race, the conversation is – we don't talk enough about race, but when you right. talk about – even when you talk about race – the conversation is often too narrow, right. that and we're leaving a lot of people behind. The indigenous, for instance, Laotians. I mean, you know, lots mm-hmm. of people who, when you think about race, you think you're talking about black people, right? It's a conversation about them, and you're leaving a lot of people out. Yes, conversations promote understanding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I want to tell our listeners a little bit more about you uh, before we continue. Uh, Michelle Norris, uh, your voice uh, may sound familiar to, to many people. You co-hosted NPR's All Things Considered from 2002 to, to 2012, uh, you're currently a columnist for the Washington Post opinion section and the host of a new uh, podcast, the Audible Original Podcast, Your Mama's Kitchen. We'll talk about that. Your first book, The Grace of Silence, was named one of the best books of the year by the San Francisco Chronicle, the Christian Science Monitor, and the Kansas City Star. And before joining NPR, you spent almost 10 years as a reporter for ABC News covering politics, policy, and the dynamics of social change. Those are my uh, most fond memories of you watching you on television when I was in TV myself. Uh, Early in your career, you also worked as a staff writer for The Washington Post, The Chicago Tribune, and The Los Angeles Times. And over your long career, you've earned multiple awards including a Peabody, an Emmy, and a DuPont. Um, talk about not having words. I don't know. I mean, it's just you've had a fantastic journalism career. And and I want our listeners to know this, too, about you, uh, about your warmth and your generosity. When I first joined um, Minnesota Public Radio five years ago and started hosting this show, uh, you came through, mm-hmm. I interviewed you, and you gave me some advice that's been so valuable. So much so, uh, you know, in the moment, I wrote it on a Post-it note. And it's still on my desk in the same place, pinned there. Uh, The advice was this. You said to me, be yourself. Full stop. Exclamation point. And those words have definitely helped me on hard days. And so my question for you is, has that advice guided you through your career in journalism? So this this is a pay it forward moment. So when I first started at NPR as the host of All Things Considered, I'd never worked in radio. So I'd worked in television. I'd been behind a microphone, but I'd never worked in radio. And Susan Stamberg, in all of her generosity, told me the exact same thing. Be yourself, full stop, exclamation point. She also said, put on lipstick 
put on <laughs> lipstick before you go on the air. Even though no one will see you, if that's what you do to make yourself feel like, you know, you're about to do something, go ahead and put on the lipstick. But she gave me that advice. And I passed it on to you. And I have a feeling that you're going to pass it on to someone else who will tack it up on their desk and, and use it as a guidepost in their own life. I try. I mean, you know, we talk a lot about all the industries where people are experiencing burnout. I talk a lot about what journalists go through Mm -hmm. um, because we are, first, we're individuals, we're people. So we're experiencing everything that we're writing about and talking about. And it's very difficult um, to be live on the air or even recorded or in front of a camera on TV or writing for a newspaper and not, you know, have feelings about what you're writing about. Um, And it's difficult also to be part of a minority within an organization where, you know, there's, let's face it, there's a, there's an NPR sound, right? you know, and in many newsrooms, there's a certain expectation of the way that you will deliver the news, that the way you will, you know, you will speak Mm -hmm. and you can twist yourself inside out trying to become that. But I think what listeners really respond to is authenticity. And when Susan told me that it also gave me, it gave me the confidence to say, I don't know everything. I, you know, it's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, if just being myself means that I don't know the answer to everything, that was the beginning of wisdom. Instead of pretending, oh, I got this. I understand, you know, Chinese monetary policy. I don't. And so I'm going to say that. And then I become a vessel for knowledge for the listener because then I can help guide them to some to understanding right. something better. It is diff- it is hard to be different in a room when, you know, you stand out you're different for many reasons, but it's even harder to try to make yourself be something that you're really not. Yeah. You're wasting energy on and trying to fit into a mold. And so it's been very freeing for me to be myself. And so, you're robbing you. you're robbing your audience of seeing that thing that makes you special. So I'm I'm glad that that advice was useful to you cuz as a listener and I still listen to NPR Oh, you good. Know, thank, thank, thankfully, computers and yes, cell phones us allow online. us to stream <laughs> online. So, you know, when I'm somewhere and I want to I wanna listen, um, I still have that hometown loyalty. All right. As I talk with uh, our, our guest today, uh, journalist and book author Michelle Norris, I, I want to hear from you too, uh, our listeners. We're taking your phone calls. The title of her new book is Our Hidden Conversations, What Americans Really Think About Race and Identity. And so as we talk more about the book, what questions do you have about her journalism career and her work with the race card project and have you found it hard to have honest conversations about race what has made it easier for you tell us about it phone lines are open here are the numbers to call call us at 651-227-6000 again 651-227-6000 or you can call 800-242-2828 let's talk about the book the new book and its origins. So again, this is going back a long time, more than 10 years, you launched the Race Card Project. So let's hear more about uh, how that started. Your request to people uh, was simple. You asked, uh, race, your story, six words, please send. <laughs> so what's going on in your life that you're like, I want to hear what, what the whole country thinks about race? Well, you'd mentioned the first book I wrote, uh, The Grace of Silence, which was about my family's complex racial legacy. And I knew when I was going out in America, in, I, we're stuck in a studio when you host. Yes. So this is a chance to be out in the world. I was on a 35-city book tour. I wanted to actually talk to people. And since we were in this interesting moment in America, we had, America had just elected a, a, a black man to serve as president. Black family had moved into the White House. And we were talking about America being post-racial. Mm-hmm. And yet when I did travel, I was l- hearing a conversation that was actually kind of 
percolating in an interesting way. We weren't done with race. It, it was, we were entering an ever more complex chapter, and I wanted to capture that. So the idea was that as I went out to talk about the book, I wanted to invite people into the conversation, and I wanted to create an on-ramp for them. And that's 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 why the postcards were important. And Minnesota was important on that journey because the city of Minneapolis did a common read around the race card project. And in part to bring different communities together to talk across difference, to talk about the things that that they had in common, but also the things that they didn't have in common and use the book as a vehicle to do that. And when we first started getting the cards back, we realized, you know, people were saying things that you didn't hear. You didn't hear people say out loud, out loud I'm only Asian when it's convenient. No, my name is not Maria. You said dirt. So I scrubbed too black for black men's love, white not allowed to be proud. It's different shopping with my mom. You know, my son's not half, he's double. And so we knew we had to keep going. And then we we did a program here at the Guthrie Theater. Um, your colleague, Carrie Miller, was mm-hmm. the interviewer that night. And we talked about the race car project and it felt it felt like church in that in that room because several people stood up and spontaneously just told their stories in six words. And the six words were often the beginning of a deeper examination of what it meant to move to the big city from northern Minnesota, to be the first black kid in class, and what it meant to have that one person who sat next to you, you know, and everybody else treated you like you had cooties. And why would kids treat you like you had cooties? Only because they heard it at home, right? Because someone told them at home, don't play with that little girl. So what does it do to ask someone to reduce your your thoughts to six words? That's hard. It's well, it's easier than you think. I mean, it's it's I think it would be harder to say, give me a sentence mm-hmm. to reduce it to six words. It's just it's it's reductive. You you have to focus on what is really most important. And um, and for a certain class of people, those of us who do Wordle every day or spelling, bee, you know, <laughs> you know, who you are. this is yes, you know, who you are. I'm one of them. I, I haven't done it. My mom is like, have you done your Wordle today? And, and, and we'll do a little bit later. Um, it you know it is it is a there's a little bit of a game in it but there's a there's a beautiful cadence to six words and it forces you to really think about what is the thing that's most important in my memory in my observation in my perspective in my the question that I have about the world and I actually think it's easier to have that conversation in six words than to try to have it in a big long dialogue. Some more examples um, of of the submissions you received, uh, six words. You're pretty for a black girl. White privilege, enjoy it, earned it. Lady, I don't want your purse. My ancestors massacred Indians near here. Urban living has made me racist. Um, Just a wide variety of messages. And in the book, uh, some of these um, submissions... There's the backstory. There, mm-hmm. there's, there are paragraphs where people go in more detail because uh, they're able to tell you more. And so, and then there are photos yeah. as well. Yeah. So I was telling you, it's a very u- unique compilation of things because there's pictures, there are essays from you, and then you see a lot of the the the, the six word, um, uh, you know, stories. Um, when you were putting the book together, was that how you envisioned it? That it would be a lot of different things, not just a textbook, not just a, a book of photos, and and how did you come up with this concept that it's a, a mixture of a lot of different things that makes it, you know, a, a great, uh, it's a treasure. It really is. Thank you for saying that. I I struggled with this book because I had this big, beautiful archive 
of human stories. And I wanted to make sure that when we sent it out into the world that it would be enticing to the eye. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to make sure that we had a very strong sort of design principle. And I wanted the book to have a beating heart. I wanted it to feel different. I mean, there are a lot of people who write about race from the tower. This is what I think. <laughs> this is what I've of what I have observed. And I didn't want to do that. I mean, this is this, this screams this is what it is. Yeah, this, well, and, and it right, comes from the yeah, people. I mean, yeah. I am just the vessel to mm-hmm. deliver this. So, I do include essays, but the essays are also rooted in the six-word stories. I use the six-word stories as an entry point to look at history, to look at trends in America, to look at things that are going on that perhaps we haven't noticed, to look more deeply at adoption, to look more deeply at blended families, to look at language and how we use it. But I wanted the book to be beautiful to the eye, and I wanted people to be able to fall into it at lots of different entry points. So if you know a deep essay is for you, you got that. If you like a good picture book, you got that. Mm-hmm. It has different fonts, different colors. It, it is a, it's a felicitous book. And so you can read it from front to back, or you can open on almost any page and fall and into in. something mm-hmm. that will catch your eye, catch your attention. And Lonnie Bunch, um, who is the, who is now the head of the Smithsonian, but at the time when he was giving me advice, was the head of the National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C. In Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. And he said, kiddo, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta have pictures in this book. Oh, thank you, Lonnie. (laughs) Thank you, Lonnie. (laughs) And he said, you know, it's going to drive your publisher crazy. There were 287 photos in the book. Mm -hmm. And he said, you have to have pictures because you want America to see itself. And you, and and the the thing I love about the pictures, they're not, they're pictures that come from the people. So people are saying, this is, this is me as an eight year old. This Mm -hmm. is my family on vacation. This is an historic photo. There's a picture of Beth Schumacher. I just saw her in Pennsylvania. It's just her hand and her child's hand, one hand over the other. And she's talking about being an adoptive parent and beautifully composed photo. Um, so people send us backstories. They send us artifacts and ephemera. And I wanted the book to feel like if you've had a scrapbook in your family, the feeling of coming upon yes. you know, mm-hmm. someone's old photo album or scrapbook and you just fall inside and you said, oh, man, that's what mom used to do. Gosh, dad used to look kind of sharp <laughs> on a Saturday night. You know, you, I wanted it to have that kind of feeling like you were eavesdropping on America because you found this big scrapbook in an attic that helped us understand who we are, who we were, and where we're going. With brutal honesty as well. Many of them. I mean, it's just it's complete from candor. the heart. Yeah. Complete candor. I mean, the fellow you said, you know, uh, white privilege, earned it, enjoy it. Mm-hmm. You know, in his backstory, he explained that he thinks that America owes a debt of gratitude to white people and white men in particular, because he says everything good in America has come from them. Now, some people have criticized us a bit for including points of view like that, but we're holding a mirror up to society, and if that's that, a point of view, that's a point of view that yeah. you're that you're going to see. And you know, after talking to a lot of people, and again, I, I was surprised. The majority of the years that we've done this, the majority of the stories have come from white Americans. So I didn't know that I was going to be entering a 14-year odyssey of listening to white Americans talk about race. That was surprising to me, but it has been such an education. Mm-hmm. And and as you listen to people, even for someone like that, I actually understand why he has that point of view. Because if you were educated in an American school system, you know, and, you know, in an American school system where the history is often built around the theory of a great white man and everything that they've done, and you haven't seen the contributions of women, you haven't seen the contributions of people of color, I actually understand how he could have, have that, that point of view. Yes. 
Yes. Um, I have to share you, uh, Michelle, with our listeners. Our phone lines are filling up. Uh, as I talk with journalist and author Michelle Norris, we do want to hear from you, too. What questions do you have for her about her journalism career, her work with the Race Car Project, her new book? Have you found it hard to have honest conversations about race? Uh, what has made it easier? The phone lines are open. You can call and, and talk with uh, Michelle. Call us at 651-227-6000 or 800-242-2828 in Hopkins. Uh, let's talk to uh, Mara, who is on the line. Good morning to you. Thank you for listening and go right ahead. Good morning. First of all, I have to say I'm so looking forward to buying this book. Secondly, you provided me a perfect segue. I am a high school English teacher. I bring in a lot of works by writers of color into my classroom because of what you just said, Michelle Norris, that I I don't want students to feel as though those contributions are less than or should be marginalized or let's just read black works during February. However, sometimes it makes for some awkward conversations in a mixed race classroom. I've actually used some of the race card project materials that as you've like just put them out on NPR um, along the way to help guide some of those uncomfortable conversations Um, And I just wanted to say one quick thing, that it's often the white students who come up to me and say, I think you're making the kids of color uncomfortable. But then the kids of color come up to me after class and say things like, thank you so much for talking openly about this. So I, I wish I knew a way to navigate that better. Mara there in Hopkins. Thank you for calling and thank you for the work you're doing uh, as an English teacher as well. Mara, thank you so much for that. I appreciate um, your honesty and that you're using the the race car project in, in the classroom. We're used in hundreds of classrooms across the country, in high schools, junior oh, high schools, wonderful. and in college campuses. You know, the, the idea that some students think, oh, they must be uncomfortable. The other group thinks, you know, thank you. Part of that is the assumptions that we make, that we, we keep things from students because we think they can't handle it. You know, this is... This has been a barometer for me also, what I've learned from the teachers who use this. And I'll give you an example. And it's it's a potent example, particularly here in Minneapolis. You know, after a, a police killing, mm-hmm. police kill someone of color, it's national news. There's a conversation. The kids sometimes are riled up about it. The teachers don't know what to say about this. So some of the teachers we've heard from have used the Race Car Project as a way to Let's just have a conversation. Let's just listen to each other. And it has helped me understand, as a, as a woman of color, I understand, okay, we just saw another example of black death on a small screen. Someone died on my phone, and I saw it happen. And so I know, I think about what I feel, what my kids feel, what people of color feel. But this project has also helped me understand, let's say that your dad is a cop, mm-hmm. and you go to school. Mm-hmm. And so that's the other side of this that we don't often think about. And so the the way that teachers have been able to use this is to draw those kids into the conversation too, right? That there's this this kind of finger pointing, like, I feel bad too, but there's not a vehicle for me to actually express that because there's no BLM that supports me. If you say blue lives matter, then that that suddenly is oppositional to the kids who are saying black lives matter. And then there are kids who are just totally left out because they're Asian or Hispanic or they're, they're, they're foreign exchange students or something. And so teachers have been able to use this as a portal to get to history, but also just as a way to allow kids to express themselves. To get it out. Right? And then also for teachers right. to hear from the kids, because the other thing we heard from teachers is that this is really interesting because in, in our day, people would pass notes. And kids don't pass notes anymore. They send everything through Snapchat and X and 
Twitter and whatever you know social media platform they're on. So it's a way to surface some of their feelings in um, in a way that allows the teachers to to eavesdrop mm-hmm. and do a little bit of reconnaissance as well. Yeah, it's so this book uh, provides an opportunity. It's a conversation starter. Um, and again, what you said, that's what my, you know, my producers and I have been doing this week. We just open it up to a page and yeah. <laughs> just jump it. You don't have to read it from like, beginning to end, but you can. So uh, personally, I mean, I was just talking to you when you walked in the studio, like just like you think of the legacy, you know, long after you're gone, this is going to be here, this book, yeah. uh, the work that you did. Yeah. So do you think about that? Like, I feel like it's it's a it's a gift. Our, our team, we have a very small and mighty team. We punch way above our weight and we're, you know, always trying to figure out how to stoke coal in the engine to basically keep the project alive. It, you know, mm-hmm. it's hard to do this. It's, it's a, it's an archive that we really try hard to take care of. Mm-hmm. And we know, we, we figured out pretty early on. And I had a couple of people, you know, who whispered the historian Michael Beschloss. He's like, you got to keep going with this because, it is, it's like a little mini WPA project that, you know, Melissa Bear and I have been running out of the, she at the kitchen table and me in the attic of my house. And we realized that we had to keep going because I have done deep research. What I would give to have an archive like this of, of first person narrative that would help me understand America in the 1920s, mm-hmm. America in the 1960s. And so long after I am gone, when people are trying to understand the era that we're living in right now, which is interesting in all kinds of ways because of our politics, because of climate change, because of demographic change, because of technological change, this archive will help people understand this moment in America. We liken it to social dendrochronology, dendrochronology being the study of tree rings. This mm-hmm. is a social tree ring that will help us understand America. Let's take another phone call from a listener before uh, we go to news. Uh, we're talking with journalist and book author Michelle Norris about uh, her new book. It's called Our Hidden Conversations, What Americans Really Think About Race and Identity. In uh, in St. Paul, we've got Peter listening this morning and on, on hold. Good morning, Peter. What do you want to ask or share? Thank you for this. Um, I, I kind of like the Buckley uh, <laughs> um style with the deep the deep stuff uh when he debated baldwin that was amazing Mm, baldwin mm -hmm. smoked him um so it's hard (laughs) for me to think in six words um but the six words i would offer is that minnesota i think culture still matters um i'm a researcher for a living i sometimes wonder absolutely a lot of racism how much is minnesota culturalism and the fact that um, there's so much still Scandinavian and German tendencies within the white population means that other people come here from other parts of the country, no matter who what their background, get directions anywhere but to someone's home. It's very <laughs> closed. It's insular. And it seems like we ignore culture at some peril when we just look at race. Let me make a statement for you. I don't care for Southerners. I don't like their social values, which I consider to be. I don't like how they think. I don't like their politics. And they're also louder than people um, from Minnesota and North Dakota and northern Wisconsin. I'm talking about all Southerners. But you can see the problems associated with that. that that are very culturally oriented. By the way, I'm not necessarily, there are times I remind myself I'm not proud of that fact. It's not an overt thing that I think about. But it's how you feel. You know, it's how how I feel feel and I hear the news 
And I know that that has an effect. Okay, so Peter, uh, thank you, Peter, for calling in. So there is a, a complexity to race relations here in in, in Minnesota. We have, um, you know, a lot. Of just it's just like this the stew, a, a beautiful stew of people of all different uh, racial backgrounds and and all these cultural differences. But communicating with one another, it it, it has been difficult. It still is difficult. I'm disheartened to hear Peter doesn't like Southerners because I'm a Southerner. Peter. I, I thought about that, deep, Peter. Do you know she's in Virginia? <laughs> <laughs> I'm from Southern Virginia, Peter, and, but we're talking uh, about my, that later. My people are from, on my father's side, are from Alabama. But I actually, mm-hmm. you know, I appreciate Peter's honesty. Yes. I, because he is saying something out loud that, right. and, and one of the things that we know, you know, that you learn in doing this work is that just because something is not fully articulated doesn't mean that it does not have a force field in a particular space. And that applies to Minnesota also in the way people talk or don't talk about things. That avoidance doesn't mean that the the force field isn't there. Um, and that may be part of, of, you know, of Minnesota culture when he's talking about the the um, German and Scandinavian influences. There's when we do work in classrooms, one of the films we asked people to look at or books and then was turned into a film was called Sweetland, which is about what happened when Germans arrived in Minnesota and what how is they it called retreated. Sweetland. Sweetland, okay. And um and and how you know and it and if you look at and if you just replace, you know, Germans and Swedes with blacks and whites or Latinos and Koreans, I mean it's really interesting, but it's going back to, you know, the times of when people would plant a flag and homesteaders, you know, and you realize we have been dividing ourselves. For centuries, mm-hmm. you know, over all kinds, over all kinds of um, of things. So, you know, and I appreciate that he also talks about culture, because when people talk about race, they're often assuming that you're just talking about racism, about, you know, you can't live here, you can't work here, uh, segregation of a specific kind with a capital S. But culture is also part of our racial experience. And it's not necessarily about racism. It's about prevailing culture. It's about beauty standards. It's about who gets to be an authority figure and who doesn't. Who gets to speak up at the town meeting? Um, you know, what we expect the town to look like. A new community moves in. Why do they barbecue in the front of their house? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, what? Mm-hmm. because that's what they did, you know, in, a, in another culture. Um, why, as he noted, why are they so loud why won't they stop dressing that way? They're in America now. Why do they cover their heads? People don't do that here, but why do they still do that? You know, that's a clashing of cultures that's not necessarily about racism, but it's about the prevailing culture and whether the culture changes as the community changes or whether there is an expectation that you're going to get with the program and and do what everybody else here does. So someone reading the book could find a lot of answers to questions that they have by by hearing or reading what people are expressing so honestly and freely. It, it can be tremendously educational. Let's go back to the phone lines and talk with a listener in St. Anthony Village. This is John. Good morning, John. Thank you for listening and calling in. Good morning. I'm, uh, I'm enjoying the conversation. Uh, the point that I want to make, I'm 72 years old mm-hmm. and I'm white And um, it seems to me that we've been talking about race since I can remember. Um, I remember seeing the Freedom Riders on black and white TV in the 60s. Uh, Martin Luther King, 
the 60s riots, affirmative action, the Bakke decision, South Boston integration, um, Daniel Patrick Moynihan during the Nixon administration when he was referring to race and saying we're going to use benign neglect, um, right up to George Floyd. I mean, we've been talking about race in this country since I can remember. So when we say that, that we don't talk about it, I think we're talking about it all the time. All right. So, John, your question from uh, Michelle would be, is what? I don't want to put words in your mouth. What would be your question to her? Uh, it's really not a question. I'm, I'm questioning this idea that the country is not talking about race. Okay, that's it. Michelle, what do you think about that? He well, says he's he's heard it his whole life. I, I think he's right. I mean, and, and you can go back, you know, he began with the Freedom Riders and the Civil Rights Movement. You can go back even further than that. And from the you know beginning of this country, there was a consternation about, you know, what do we do about people of, of, of difference? Um, going back to even before slavery. But the reason this book is called Our Hidden Conversations is that our public conversations about race are very different than the ones that happen below the surface. And one of the big lessons for me is I realize that the conversations that we have in the media, and he's talking about conversations, maybe that he's talking about conversations that he had about the civil rights movement or the Bakke decision or John, or, or, uh, Patrick, or Moynihan mm-hmm. um, at his table. But I think it's more likely the conversations that we're hearing that are coming from the media. And a big lesson in this book is that the conversations that we're having, that we're leading about these big seismic events that merit our attention are very different than the conversations that people are having closer to the ground. At home, at, at the home, dinner table. At the barbershop, in the church basement, along the side of the soccer field where their kids are playing together. That is a very, very different conversation that sometimes reflects or reflects from what they hear in that big public conversation. But that conversation below the surface is about how we live. It's about the lived experience of a race. And that is something that is very different than what we're having. And it was it was instructional to me because I realized that even though I participate in an ongoing conversation about race in America, sometimes racism, but usually about race in America, there's a lot that I'm not getting. And notice that when he went through, his observations are correct, mm-hmm. but notice that when he went through the litany of things that he's talking about, all those things were primarily about a binary construct around race, about black Americans and white Americans. So there's a lot of people who are even left out of that discussion altogether. And when we hear from people who are sending in their stories, they're sometimes talking about racism, but they're often just talking about what how the world sees them or how they see the world. And sometimes that has something to do with their skin color or their hair texture or their eye color. But sometimes it's just because I'm Southern and I speak with an accent, because I'm in the military, because I have red hair. We have hundreds of cards from people who have red hair who say the world treats them differently, that they're, that they, they discern something about their temperament, you know, just because they have red hair. I, I, this is what I would say to John is I think America needs to tell itself a different story about race. A fuller story, because the story that we so often focus on when we talk about race is usually incomplete. It's often untrue. It is often focused on some big seismic event. And the overall narrative is often distorted by people who are telling a certain story about difference, about ability about um, worth, 
you know, a, a worth ethic, not a work ethic, a worth ethic that suits their own purpose and allows them to perhaps to hold on to power and keep other people at a lower rung. And I hope that this book contributes to that in some way, because if we want to tell a fuller story, we have to hear from a lot more people. And we have to hear not from just the people in the tower or, or in corridors of power, but people telling us in their own words. Because our hidden conversations often are the conversations we're having with ourselves, uh, as well as family members and close friends. But these conversations also have to do with our actions, how we yes, behave have, as individuals. They have a significant impact. to the core of, of what This is why you is get happening. a mortgage or why you don't. Right. This is why this resume winds up in right. this pile or this one doesn't. I mean, there are a few stories in the book about someone who moves in a neighborhood, and this struck me because my parents were the first black family to move on their block, but someone moves into a neighborhood and the, whole, the house is burned down. You know, that's an aspect of history. Which happened. Which happened, but it's in a no history book. It just happened in a small town somewhere or in a city in, you know, someplace in New Jersey. That's part of the hidden conversation. We're having a conversation about race all the time. It's just not as fulsome as it could possibly be. Uh, I have the book open to page 215 uh, in large, bold letters, uh, a six-word essay, (laughs) I suppose you'd call it. Uh, Black babies cost less to Mm. adopt. Uh, I heard you talk about this, I believe, uh, when you were on the Stephen Colbert show, um, that that is a significant um, story that you wanted to share. So talk to me about that. I did some reporting on this. We did a, a segment when we used to do the race card segments on um, Morning Edition on, on this. These six words were from – we've actually received several versions of this where people talking about the idea that when you adopt a child, it's not that people are buying a child. You don't – you know, cost mm-hmm. is an interesting word there. What they're talking about is the the fee structure associated with adoption. And what this six-word story does is peels back the cover on a difficult aspect of adoption in America, a beautiful process of adoption when people open their hearts and their homes to someone. But adoption in some ways reflects a value system in America in that the fees associated with adoption in many cases vary based on the race of the child and in some cases the skin color of a child. So the fees associated with adopting um, a, a child who's Caucasian are much higher than the fees associated with adopting a child who is in a just sort of a gradation. It goes down Asian, Latino, black, somewhere in there, indigenous, somewhere in there, various light skin, dark skin, somewhere in there, boys versus girls. And this was a really difficult chapter to write, but I found a beautiful story about a family that adopted a child. And I was able to look at it from all different sides from the adoptive family, from the mother who gave up the baby, who had no idea that she was being placed in a discounted program and only mm-hmm. discovered it later. And, you know, and the, the irony in this chapter is that the, the variegated fee structure in some way is altruistic. Black families participate in adoption at a lower rate, but they foster at a higher rate. And that adoption, those lower fees can help more people participate in adoption. And in this case, the family that's at the center of this chapter, it made a difference. It actually allowed them to, it would have been too expensive otherwise. Yeah, so and, it's it's and, just the complexity of race. And you write in this chapter, honestly, I hope reading about this does make you squirm, right? So yeah, I, I, I think we should be uncomfortable about this. We should interrogate this and maybe find other ways to incentivize people without devaluing a child's life before they before they even have a chance to, you know, take their first step.
Let's take another phone call from uh, a listener, Michelle in Woodbury. Brenda is on the phone this morning and listening with us. Good morning, Brenda. What uh, what did you want to share with us as we talk about uh, uh, Michelle's new book, Our Hidden Conversations, What Americans Really Think About Race and Identity? I can't wait to read it. Um, (laughs) um, So I have three grandsons who are black and reaching young adulthood, and it's terrifying to have them go out into the world as it is. Um, So just for me, as their grandma and someone who has raised them, um, it's really scary. Um, The comment that I or question I have is, um, so if race is a social and artificial construct, can we, is it helpful at all to also move toward um, eliminating that word from our operating how we how we talk about anything that to go to that that we have many cultures and i like you're talking about that we have many cultures which is learned um but we have one race so when I'm, I'm curious within your family do you have a, a diversity within your family do you have people of multiple races within your family absolutely my daughter is from india through adoption um and almost 40 years ago my three grands three of my grandchildren out of eight are black and there's just this unity that that my grandsons were born into three cultures mm-hmm. okay um at some point do you think we'll get in looking ahead do you think we'll get beyond sort of our some of our beliefs now about race do you think we'll be having I, different know, conversations? I, I i don't know i think the conversation will be different you know in the in the i don't know that we will ever get over it. we're a, we're a variegated country and i think that's a beautiful thing there are two things i would say um, to Brenda. And Brenda, thank you very, very much for your call. And uh, I hope you do enjoy the book. You know, you, you say, can we get past using the word race? I think we do need new terms. And I think we need sort of new framework for the conversation. But one of the things that I suggest in the book is if you're trying to understand race or racism, try talking about it without using the words. So you can't use the word oh. race. You can't use the word prejudice. You can't use the word bias, all the other sort of derivatives of this concept. And this was something I learned in a conversation that I was at a workshop I was involved in where we were trying to talk about poverty, but you couldn't use the word poverty. Couldn't use poor, couldn't use impoverished. And then what it forces you to do is to talk about, okay, what are we really talking about when we're talking about poverty? We're talking about want. We're talking about people who don't have enough. We're talking mm-hmm. about, it forces you, it's kind of like that six word exercise mm-hmm. that forces you to kind of get to the essence of that. And so I I don't know that we're going to, we keep trying to be done with race. We keep trying to say that we're over it. Like, you know, we're post-racial or we're not going to teach right. so-called we, critical race therapy. We, we're, we're done. We're done. The problem is race is not done with us. And race, not everything about race is about racism. It's it's about how we figure out how to coexist, how to work together with people that are different than us, that think differently, that we don't agree with all the time. And yet we have to figure out how to coexist and how to work productively. And that's, I think, the benefit of understanding other cultures and recognizing them. Other thing I would say to Brenda is in a blended family like this, you might look at the chapter that I wrote about keeping a family picture by the front door. Because if one of the reasons I keep a family photo at the front door is so when people at my home, when you walk in the foyer, you see a smiling picture of the family at the front door. So if someone enters our home in an integrated neighborhood and they see that we live in the house, we live in the house that we occupy, and it was sort of an insurance policy, and, and we had to cash that 
quote, insurance policy in one night when my son, home from college because of COVID, learning from our house, my husband and I were out of town late at night. He's a tennis fanatic, stays up very late at night to to watch tennis in real time. So he's just been up like living like a vampire watching the Australian Open. But at that time, he has he was on a late night fridge raid, set the alarm off. And the police came to the home. And in the middle of the night, he's looking some kind of way. His hair is all, you know, because he, he was just brown skin. And he has brown skin. Yes. And he's lives in this nice house. And the police are like, you live here? He's like, yes. And he's like, where are your parents? They're out of town. How long have you lived here? He's doing the because we moved recently. Right. And he's like, was it one year, two years ago? And then he remembers the picture, and he points to oh the picture on the fall. He says, "That's us. That's us. We live here." It's kind of crazy that I have to keep that picture by the front door. But as long as we live in a place where my son might be that people would look at him and they wouldn't say Stanford graduate. They wouldn't say kind heart. They wouldn't see all the things that I know are true about my kids. You know, until we can figure out how to eradicate those assumptions, that's my little teeny insurance policy. That if someone enters our home, that they see that this that that's us. We live here. And that's kind of a crazy thing, but I share that with Brenda because she talks about how terrified she is for her boys. Sometimes that is, you know, we worry about not just when they go out in the world, but what happens when the world comes comes into our own homes. Michelle, in our final uh, time here, and I'm sorry we don't have more time uh, to talk about this, I want to acknowledge your Aunt Doris, who helped mm. you with the race car project, uh, who lived here into the Twin Cities until she passed away just a couple of weeks yeah, ago, yeah. and and how she was special to you, but also special to the community she lived in. Well, she's one of the reasons that the race card project took root here. She just passed away a few weeks ago, and she's my my mother's older sister. And she asked us to bring the race card project because of a dispute at a dog park at uh, King Park over on um, Nicollet Avenue. And uh, there was, you know, people were moving in and they wanted to create a dog park that would be not a dog run near the statue of Dr. King. And she said, why don't you come in and allow us to use the race car project so people can listen to each other. And, and that's the, what we try to do is to create a space where people can listen to each other. We'll do that tonight at Westminster. It's not just me talking. We're actually going to make this work come alive within a dramatic reading of many of the six word stories. And it'll include dignitaries from here, Peggy Flanagan and Tom Weber, um, mm-hmm. known, you know, known mm-hmm. to listeners here, Liz Winstead, Roxanne Battle, Laisha Ward and her husband, Bill Kim. Meyer, and I'll be uh, in the audience. Jai Winston. Cheering they're you they're all going to you know do a dramatic reading of the race card project story, sort of a tone poem mm-hmm. before we have her conversation. Well, on behalf of uh, Minnesotans who've watched your spectacular career, um, thank you. We're proud of you. Keep working. Keep being awesome. Michelle Norris, the new book is Our Hidden Conversations, What Americans Really Think About Race in I. Uh, and identity. Again, uh, thank you, Michelle. Thank you for what you've meant to me personally. Such an honor to be here. This conversation was produced by Maya Beckstrom. We'll talk again soon. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.